Well, hey everyone, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Res City, so thankful to have you worshiping with us here, uh, whether you're doing it in person with us or maybe you're watching online right now. Uh, just thankful to have you joining us in worship. Um, I just love Sundays. I love that we can come together. Um, we can gather together. We can be God's people. We can worship Him. We can take communion together. We can study His Word. Um, it's just, it's really fantastic. I think it's, it's something we, we obviously take for granted because we do it every week, but it's really awesome and special. And so thanks for being here and joining us. Us today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into our, uh, our sermon for today. Lord, thank you um, that as we gather today, as we come to study your word, um, as we come to worship you, as we come to uh, take communion, Lord, that you come here and you gather with us. Lord, we've been talking a lot in this series through 1 Corinthians about your spirit, your presence being with us, that you dwell with us, that we are um, your holy temple. And Lord, we believe that that's true this morning. So um, I pray that you would, uh, you'd be with us as we study your word, that you would give us wisdom, um, that through your spirit, that you would help us to, to grow in some way, Lord, as we study this uh, passage today, God, even if in just a small thing, Lord, um, and that, um, that as we, we go out from here, Lord, you would, uh, you'd be with us, you'd remind us that you're with us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it was just the 4th of July. We just celebrated that a couple of days ago. Kind of a very inconvenient time, I feel like, for, to have the 4th of July in the middle of the week. Um, but uh, anyway, we, we just celebrated this holiday, which is one of the largest holidays we celebrate every year in America because it's so sort of fundamental to American identity, which is freedom, independence, right? We, we get together, we blow stuff up, and uh, we get sunburned to celebrate our freedom in America. It's a very weird way to celebrate the holiday, I've, I've always felt like. Um, but that is so fundamental to who we are, is freedom, independence. Um, and, and as Americans, um, we value our freedom very much. Now, on the 4th of July, we celebrate becoming free from another nation. And I think that's how we tend to think about freedom is this ability to have authority or autonomy over something. And, and when we have that, I think it's important to us that we feel like we alone get to decide what we do with it. Like we're the only people who a decision affects, we're the only stakeholders in some way. Uh, but things are often a lot more complicated than that in, in the real world, I think we find. Um, last night I was at the Minnesota United game and um, I don't know if you've gone to any games um, at, at Allianz Field. Um, it's not a large field, but the people who are there are, are so crazy passionate about the team. Um, there's one section of fans where they literally don't stop yelling and banging drums the whole time. Like, I'm pretty sure they're more tired than any of the players on the field at the end of the game. Um, and, and I was there with my brother-in-law, he's in town visiting, and we were just chatting kind of about, uh, about the team and the game. And, and, and he's, a, he's a much bigger fan than I am. And I asked him, well, what's the name of the owner? Like, what's his story? And he's like, I actually don't even know the name of the owner, which is kind of weird when you think about it because the owner is the person who gets to decide everything that the team does, right? The owner is the one who has complete autonomy over the team. But when you think about the team, you think about the, the fans, really, right? They have more of a stake in the team, in a lot of ways, you could argue, than the owner does. Uh, a lot of times in, in, in sports, the owner is just kind of there to make money. That's kind of how they view the team. But the fans don't view it that way. They have a much greater stake in it, even though they have no ability to influence what decisions are being made about the team, right? Uh, a similar idea, another example. Um, the Red City softball team, 
First of all, we're doing pretty good this year. Just want to throw that out there. Um, and last year, we were pretty good too. But if you played on the team or you know anyone who played on the team last year, you know that we got injured a ton. Like every time I would come home from a game and I would, Julie would be like, how'd the game go? And I'd be like, it was great. We, you know, we won or lost or whatever, but this person got hurt. This thing happened to them. And she's like, geez, what is going on on your softball team that everyone is getting hurt every single night? Um, people were getting bumps and bruises, losing feeling in their fingers, groin injuries. We had someone dislocate their finger. We even had someone pass out last year at one point in our games. And so now, whenever I leave to go play softball, Julia is always like, good luck, you know, have fun. And then she always says, and be very careful don't get yourself hurt. <laughs> and she's very clear to tell me that every, every week. Now, think about that. Why would Julie care so much about decisions I make on the softball field? Like, why would she care if I choose to, to lay out to dive to catch a ball or, you know, get in the way of a, a ball that's, you know, chopping and might hit me in the face? Like, she's, she's going to be fine. She will feel no pain at all, right? Um, well, the, the reality is, if I get hurt, if I make a decision with, you know, to do something, she's going to be affected by it. She is a stakeholder in what happens to me, too. If I, if I get hurt, she's got to take me to the hospital. She's got to care for me. She's got to help me out. And on top of that, I mean, I assume she'd have some, some emotional pain from seeing me be in physical pain, too, right? So when I'm out on that field, and I'm making a decision to, you know, there's a ball coming, and I'm like, I don't think I can get it by running. Maybe I should dive for it. I've got to think, well, should I do something stupid and hurt myself? Um, because, like, Julie has asked me to consider um, that she's also a stakeholder in what I decide to. Even though I'm the one who gets to make the decision, right? She, she is going to be affected by it in some way. And so I have to kind of keep that in mind, right? I bring all this up because I think it, it, gets, it helps us a little bit to understand the passage today. Now, 1 Corinthians is about holiness. If you've been here, if you've heard any of these sermons, we've talked so much about this idea of holiness, and we're calling it becoming who we are. We're talking about how we're living into this identity of becoming holy people. And we've defined holiness as set-apartness, as sacredness, as being dedicated to God himself with everything that we do, every part of us. This is our primary identity, and we are urged in this, in this letter by Paul to become who we are. Today, the passage is about how we can be holy with our bodies, and specifically, talks about how we can be holy with our bodies in regards to sex. That's the, what the passage is about today. And, and the big idea of the passage, I'll just kind of give it to you now, is that holiness challenges us to see a deeper purpose for our bodies and what we choose to do with them than we often are told. And it invites us to see God as a primary stakeholder in what we do with our bodies as well. And that's really what holiness is all about. And the, the reason that we're talking about sex with this is that I think sex is a really important arena in which our holiness plays out. And so if we're going to become who we are, we have to take that seriously. Now, I realize this is an impossibly huge idea and topic, right? There's a, it's, it's, a, it's a, something we can't get into depth on in, in one Sunday sermon. So I'm not even going to try to do that, all right? There's, this will, might raise lots of questions for you um, beyond what we talk about today, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think it may be the great to kind of uh, open up deeper conversation. You'll have that opportunity in community groups um, this week. We all, we all come from different places in life, right? Not all of us are in the same stage of life or place in life or have the same um, kind of relationship to other people when it comes to sex, right? Some people are single, some are dating, some are married, 
Some have kids. Like, there's all these different variations that our lives can take, okay? So what I want to do today is instead of trying to do justice to all of those things, we're just going to read the passage, and we're just going to try to understand in depth what Paul is talking about really well, okay? So to do that, we have to read the passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole passage to us, and we'll kind of spend the rest of the sermon uh, unpacking it and talking a little bit about it. Sound good? Cool. All right, here we go. We're in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, uh, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. All right. Quick note about the passage, and maybe just about the book of 1 Corinthians, kind of more generally. You notice, as we read through here, there were times where things were in quotations. Um, There's some difficulty with some of these passages in 1 Corinthians, because it's pretty clear that what Paul is doing is he's repeating back to the Corinthians things that they've said, and then he's responding to them. The challenge with that is there is no quotation marks in Greek. So we have a hard time sometimes knowing what is them and what is Paul. Right? And it creates a little bit of confusion. And that's going to become an issue as we continue moving forward throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And we have that here. There's a little bit of ambiguity with different things. But, but what I think is very clear is this, that the issue that's going on in Corinth that Paul is responding to is that there are men sleeping with prostitutes, mar- married men, very likely, and they see no issue with it. And their rationale for it for it is a kind of dualism, right? They, saw, they said this is merely a pleasure of the body, just like eating would be, and has nothing to do with the life of the kingdom, nothing to do with my spiritual life. They had a kind of strict division between those things. And they said, so they said, let me do what I want. <laughs> just leave me alone, okay? For them, they saw themselves as very spiritual people. That's actually a word that Paul seems to use to describe them as a word that, that reflecting back on something that they thought of themselves, that they were very wise, they were very enlightened, and therefore they should get to make their own rules for their own benefit and their own pleasure and happiness. And so they had decided that they could do what they wanted with their bodies. They were not accountable to anybody else, even anyone in the spiritual realms. And so because of this, because they thought bodies were just these containers that they're stuck in that would one day be destroyed, and like how food is made for the stomach and stomach for food, they had said, well, the body is made for sex and sex for the body and nothing else. And since there's lots of pleasure that can come from sex, why don't you just have some fun while you can? It really seemed to be like that was kind of what, what was going on in Corinth. And Paul wants to respond. 
respond to this development to them. Now, what he says here in verse 12, I think, kind of gets at the logic, specifically the logic of what um, he wants to kind of challenge their thinking with when he says this. All right, he says, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Right? So they're saying, I'm allowed to do anything I want. Now, the Greek word here that is used is the word for authority. It comes from the Greek word exousia. Okay? So what they're saying is really is, I have authority to do whatever I want. Okay? I get to choose what I want to do with my body. Now, Paul is actually not going to debate that. Maybe that surprises you in some way. He's not going to paternalize them in any way and say, you know, oh, I actually have a right over your body or someone else has a right over your body to tell you what to do with it. Okay, he's like, you're right. You have freedom in Christ. You, no one can come in and control what you do with your body. You are the decision maker on what you want to do with this stuff. But he questions them and says, does that mean you should do whatever you want with it? Right? Perhaps there might be some unintended consequences that might arise if this is sort of the principle that you're choosing to live with. Because when that's the case, very often we will find that instead of actually being free like we think we are, we become ruled over by something else. Okay? Think of it like this. Imagine you run a zoo, and you can do whatever you want with the zoo. You're like the, the head decision maker of the zoo. And you kind of come to this conclusion that leaving all the animals in their um, exhibits is not the best way to do it. The best way to do it would actually be to let all the animals free, let them do whatever they want, kind of like in the real wild. Okay, there'd be no boundaries. It would be the world's most progressive zoo ever, right? It'd be super cool. And so one day you work up the courage to throw open all the doors and let the animals roam free. Cool, awesome, right? This is going to be super fun. Well, let's think about what actually probably would happen here. The bears start to eat the other animals, and, you know, the humans visiting the zoo have to be on the lookout for lions now, and the monkeys are going to be hiding everything. It's going to be total chaos. And now you, as the zookeeper, are constantly chasing animals around, right? Instead of this being the dopest, freest zoo ever, you are actually locking yourself in a cage because you are constantly responding to what all the animals do. You're at the whims of these animals running around with their animal-like behavior, right? So your whole life revolves around dealing with the circle of life, right? Chasing animals around. That's what you have signed yourself up for in this kind of zoo. You were so concerned whether or not you could do this, you never really asked if you should do it and what would happen. Now, I think Paul is talking about something similar here. When we throw open the zoo of our desires, like we're often told is the best thing to do with them, what we end up doing is becoming enslaved to them. As we chase them around, trying to satisfy them, trying to keep up with them, we actually become enslaved to the whims of our desires, which are very fickle. They're like animals a lot of times. They don't always have a lot of thought behind them. We like to think we have authority to do whatever we want and that makes us free autonomous people, but the truth is we actually become to enslaved to things all the time under the illusion of freedom. And Gordon Fee, he's, a commentator, he's a, a commentator in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says there's a kind of self-deception that inflated spirituality promotes, which suggests to oneself that one is acting with freedom and authority, but which in fact is an enslavement of the worst kind to the very freedom someone thinks they have. Okay? Now this can happen to us in all kinds of ways, but it for sure happens when it comes to sex. 
Okay? And this idea of kind of throwing open the zoo of our desires was very common in the ancient world. So let me actually give you a couple of quotes from a couple of authors, a um, cu- couple of writers from some ancient texts kind of would have been written and maybe, maybe even known by the, by the Corinthians here. Okay? First one is from a guy named Demosthenes in a, in a book called Against Nearia, something like that. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, and we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. Okay? So what he's saying here is that if you were a man, you would be married and you'd have a, a wife who would produce kids for you, and that would be where your legacy would come from. Okay? That's, that's, that's the job of your wife. But for all the sexual pleasures and all the cravings that you had, the day-to-day bodily needs that he talks about, marriage was not at all the expectation that that would be the place that you would satisfy those things, right? You could kind of go do whatever you wanted. And it happened all the time, right? It's kind of the ancient world's version of porn, really, if you think about it. Um, so, oh, sorry, second, Horace, sorry on the screen, my bad. So um, Horace is another writer in this, in, in this letter called Sermons. He... Um, He actually puts it more crudely and goes a little bit further. He says, If your groin is swelling and a housemaid or a slave boy is at hand, arousing constant desire, do you prefer to burst with tension? Not me. I enjoy love that is available and easy. They're basically saying, "If, if you feel like it, why wouldn't you just grab the nearest disposable human and engage in some easy love? Okay? This is a pretty, you know, normal way to put it in the ancient world. And it's kind of, it sucks to, to see that that's the case, but that's really the attitude of a lot of people around the Corinthians as Paul is writing this letter. Now, it's not exactly the same today, but, you know, there is some crossover, I think. I think if we were going to define the modern view of sex, we would say sex is both something that's very casual and in some ways very unimportant, but it's also, at the same time, weirdly, necessary for fulfillment and expression of identity, right? We also, just like Horace says, I think in our culture are taught to value love that is available and easy as well, right? This is why porn and Tinder exists, right? It's so that we can take advantage of that same desire. Now, we're not going to get into the history of all this a bunch today, but I do think it's helpful sometimes to understand a little bit of why this is the case, right? The, the waters that we swim in, to come out of the water maybe just for a second. Um, really, this is all kind of a result of something called the sexual revolution. Um, and the, the sexual revolution was really about liberation of, of needs and, and satisfactions which were previously tabooed or repressed in some way. That's the language that that gets used often by some kind of social control, okay? So in other words, um, people, someone else putting boundaries on sex, that's oppressive. And so it should become expendable in a new sort of liberated understanding of sex. And in this new age, you know, we're supposed to express identity and authority over ourselves, right? And primarily to use sex as for pleasure, right? And what that does is that is actually the sign of, a, I think, often a mentally healthy and fulfilled person, we're told. Someone who embraces their desires, who refuses to be repressed in any way, and, 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 not, um, and a very fulfilled person, right? Liberated and fulfilled, kind of pushing back against anyone that would try to control you in some way. And so sex kind of just has become this, like, another itch that we can scratch. That's what we're told, right? It's, it's nothing special. 
um, except that it, it shows us it's a sign of a fulfilled person, okay? But again, now think about this. That's a lot of the times how sex is presented to us. But on the other hand, um, sex is treated as if it's incredibly important and ultimate in how we deal with it, right? Which makes it kind of a, a weird contradiction, right? If, if sex is so casual and normal, why do we have such a deep longing for it? Everyone recognizes that. Everyone makes a big deal out of uh, having sex for the first time, right? If sex is so casual, why do we attach something so much deeper to it? Um, why do we treat it like it's such a big deal, right? Why in, in a TV show is it such a big deal when two characters get together and sleep with one another? It's treated as an incredibly important moment a lot of times in these shows, while at the same time we're told it's not that big a deal when they break up and they remain friends as if nothing happened, right? Um, we're a confused mess in a lot of ways, and I don't think we realize how we become slaves to it all, right? And I think one thing that happened recently that was, I think, very helpful, kind of as a crack in this a little bit, it kind of caused us to reevaluate the system we were living in was the Me Too movement, right? This has happened within the last five or so years here. And it was, it was a moment where we all had to kind of grapple with the fact that we'd been living in this world where the sexual zoo was open and the animals were running all over the place. And we were starting to realize lots of people have been deeply, deeply harmed because of this. Right? And what we were doing is we were um, creating tons and tons of slaves to sexual desires, whether it's the people that are acting on their own desires or people that have now become enslaved by someone else acting out of their quote-unquote freedom to do something to them that kind of now enslaves them to some sort of trauma because of what's happened to them. And we could see, you know, maybe for some of the first time, the waves and waves of people coming forward and confessing that they'd been victims to all of this, right? Another way we see the slavery play out is porn. And we've, we've talked about this before, I think last fall. So I won't, you know, spend a lot of time on this, but porn and lust, like when you really study the effects that it has on the human brain, it's incredibly addictive. It's like a drug, there's actually lots of brain research on this that says that there are neural pathways that get created in our brains by you know, regular lust and porn intake that are really, really hard to break, right? And there's a recent study on brain scans of men while watching porn that showed that the part of their brain that lights up when watching it is the part of the brain that deals not with people but with objects. And that there has been been established a link between porn and objectifying humans. And so Dr. John Falbert is a PhD at Oklahoma State who studies this stuff. He says, the more we dehumanize someone, the more possible it is to commit violence against them. It's actually been seen to be a link between um, a lot of different types of violence, like sexual, sexual violence and watching porn. Okay? Remember what we said in, in the What is Sin series a few months ago? You become what you worship. This is a really good example of it, I think. In porn, the actors are just pixels on the screen for you, just objects to use to provide yourself with some pleasure. When we become enslaved to that, that's how we start to view all people and all sexual encounters. It's a form of slavery is really what it is, and what Paul is talking about here is challenging us against that. Now, maybe what we need is some sort of redeemed view of human bodies and what they've been made for. And when we become one with Jesus in the gospel, what we're, we're given that. And that's what Paul is going to recite to us here in the rest of this passage. He kind of briefly offers, I think, a better vision uh, for how we should think about how we're using our bodies in this realm of sex in a way that is going to glorify God more um, than we often see. 
Okay, so let, let's, let's uh, read back through this last part of the, uh, of the, of the passage, verses um, six, uh, 15 to 20. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Yes, we should have freedom over what we do with our bodies. But God wants us to think about how we use that freedom. Are we going to use that freedom in a way to acknowledge others who have a stake in what we do and therefore seek out holiness, or are we going to use it in some other way? That's the question here. That's the challenge, okay? Because in sex, and, and Paul makes this, I think, very clear here, what we decide affects other stakeholders in our body too, right? And so Paul lists two other stakeholders in this passage uh, that, of, of what is t- taking place when we use, decide to use our bodies in a certain way for sex. It's affecting other people, even though it's our choice, okay? The first stakeholder is those that we have sex with, okay? And Paul says, the two are united as one, okay? He talks about this reality. Now, what he's doing is he's quoting Genesis 2.24, which reminds us what sex was made for in the first place. If you've, ever, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, there's a, probably at least a 50% chance this verse was quoted somewhere in there. It's a very kind of important verse for understanding what's taking place in human. Sorry, what, what's taking place in marriage. And, and, and the thing is, is what, what Paul is saying here is that humans are like a two-sided coin. All coins are two-sided, I guess. But it's, it's, a, it's a coin with the two sides. And the two sides are like our soul or our mind or our emotions and then our body on the other end. Okay? Now, you can't separate the two out. You can kind of look at one side of the coin or the other and examine it, but they're always a part of the same coin. They're always connected to one another. To try to connect these out is to try to introduce a sort of dualism to who we are as people that isn't true. Okay? Our minds, our souls are deeply connected to our bodies and vice versa. And the covenantal vision for biblical romantic relationship is a covenant where we freely give ourselves over to another. What we're giving over to someone is both sides of the coin. We're acknowledging that they have both sides of the coin of who we are. Okay, on the one side, there's our love, our emotion, our fidelity, our covenant, what comes out of our soul and mind. And on the other side is the physical nature of it as well. When you commit to someone to love them, you are saying, I'm giving you all of myself, and I acknowledge you have both sides of the coin. Okay? But what we do sometimes is we pretend we've only given one side of the coin over to somebody else. And Paul's saying that's not how it works. Right? If you um, have sex with somebody, Paul's saying, if you have sex with a prostitute, you've given them both sides of the coin, but you're pretending they only, they only have the one side and you don't have to give them the other. But Paul's saying it doesn't work like that in reality. Okay? A theology of the body where you're just having sex whenever for pleasure is missing this deeper vision entirely. It's missing this deeper explanation for who we are as people. And I think it really does explain why there are such deep feelings that develop between people when they, quote-unquote, just have sex with each other. We're giving them 
much more than just an entertaining evening. We're giving them ourselves. And so Paul is saying, keep that in mind as you think about what you do with your bodies in sex. Now, the second stakeholder that Paul addresses here or or identifies here is Jesus and God. He says, honor God with your body. Okay? When we follow Jesus, God's spirit has taken up residence in us. That's what it means when Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul has also talked about the church as, uh, as the temple a few uh, passages earlier. And we actually, at our retreat uh, a few weeks ago, we dove really deeply into that idea. Now, here he's kind of expanding that idea and saying it's not just the gathered group of people in the church that come together that make up a residence where God's presence dwells. You're like that too when God's spirit rests in you. Okay? Now, I won't get into all of the stuff we talked about that at the retreat, about what it means to be a temple. Like, What is the temple even? But the big ideas were that the temple is a dwelling place on earth for God, for the God of the universe to take up residence. It gives us an identity, the place where God has chosen to dwell. It makes this space that it's in sacred, set apart, a different kind of place than it was before because of who has taken up residence there. And it becomes now a center for blessing uh, the world around it. Okay? If you didn't, if you weren't at the retreat, actually have the talk on, um, on, our, on our website, on our, on our podcast feed. I really highly encourage you to go through it because I think temple is such an uh, abstract concept to us today. It's really helpful to understand what the temple was and to help us understand what it means that we become God's temple, okay? So that's what Paul's drawing on here. That's what he's saying in here. Now, you maybe have heard people talk about their body as a temple before, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a notion or slogan people use sometimes. But what, what kind of stuff are they talking about when they say that? Can anyone throw out an example for me? Yeah, working out. They're like, my body's a temple, so I'm gonna you know, work out every day. I'm gonna make it look nice and chiseled. Being a temple of the Lord means I have a six-pack. Yes. Okay. What other kind of stuff do people throw out there? Eating healthy. Yeah, exactly. Eating healthy is kind of the same idea, right? My body is a temple, so I'm going to take really good care of it by eating really healthy. Yeah. Um, Another one is like, I'm not going to put certain chemicals inside myself, right? Like, I'm not going to do drugs or or drink alcohol or anything like that because my body is a temple. It's a special place. I'm going to take really good care of it. Okay? Now, by all means, you can do all those things. I think you probably should. It's probably a, probably a good idea to keep those things in mind. Um, but that's not what Paul is talking about here, okay? And actually, when we think about our body as a temple in, in those ways, actually, we're kind of missing the point entirely because when we think about our body as a temple and we say, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff to make sure my body is in great shape so I can live forever or something like that, who, is our, who are we primarily thinking about we're thinking about ourselves, right? We're thinking of our body as a temple means I'm going to do everything I can to make myself, maximize myself or make myself to flourish in some way, right? That misses the point of what a temple is entirely, okay? Because when, our, when we talk about our body as a temple, we're talking about it being dedicated not to us but to someone else. We're talking about that it's, it's been dedicated to God. And so the decision that we make, we're acknowledging Don't just have us in mind, but also have God in mind. That's what Paul is talking about here, okay? A temple is not dedicated to the bricks and the gold and the pillars that make it up. It's not dedicated to itself. A temple can't be dedicated to itself. It is a house that exists to be dedicated to the God who lives in it. And that's who we are. 
That's who we are. So using our body as a sort of mindless pleasure machine is not really dedicating it to God. It's dedicating it to ourselves. Instead, we're supposed to honor God with our body. That's the big idea here. Now, I know sometimes we talk about sex and boundaries and all these different things. Like sometimes you think of, um, you know, we, we, something, something called evangelical purity culture, right? I think it's kind of interesting when we talk about that because I think even, even this sort of idea of purity culture a lot of times, it's still kind of falling into some of the traps that we're talking about here. Because a lot of times that's about saying, well, there's a godly vision for sex that is about you know, creating the best sex for yourself, but it's just going to happen in marriage. That's, again, I think really missing the point. The point here is about holiness is being like God. Okay? And God has given his body to us. That's what the cross is about. Right? Him giving his body to us so that we might find life, we might flourish, we might have hope. We as people who are reciprocating to that, acknowledging that, we are doing the same thing back to God. We are dedicating our bodies back to God in holiness, in set-apartness, in acknowledging him as Lord of our desires. That's what this is really all about. That's the main point of this passage for us to take away. Now, to close here, I actually want to extrapolate out on this just a little bit, kind of go a little bit Somewhere that Paul doesn't go in this passage, but I actually think that there are sort of some profound implications for this theology of the body that speak to things that Paul is not necessarily dealing with here. Paul's talking about a sort of dignity that we're supposed to give to our bodies and how we choose to have sex or not with them, right? What we choose to do with them. But dignity works the other way too, okay? Dignity and the idea that God dwells in us can also restore a body, that has been violated in some way, right? The sexual zoo has been thrown open, and we talked a lot about how there's been a lot of victims in the midst of that. That's what the Me Too moment was sort of a reminder of. When we are invited to see our bodies as a place that God's presence dwells, we are invited to see our bodies as good, as holy, as having dignity, no matter what may have been done to them, no matter what guilt or shame that we carry in them for decisions we've made in the past, perhaps, that we're not proud of, or for things that have been done to us that weren't even our decision, that we had no control over, okay? But now we still carry that around with us in our bodies. Okay, we can start to look at our bodies and ourselves in the light of those things. That can start to become our identity. But when we have a theology of our bodies as a place where God's presence dwells, we are acknowledging that that old identity that we may have had for our body gets overridden completely by the glory of the God who has taken up residence in it. Okay? This is a way the gospel can restore us, is by by giving our bodies dignity, by getting rid of shame and guilt. Right? When God takes up residence in us through his spirit, He's not like a homeowner who you know, wants an inspection, wants to know the history of the house before he decides to move in. Okay? That's not what God does. Okay? He moves into it knowing whatever the history of the body might have been and saying, I'm still going to live here. I'm still going to redeem this thing. This thing is still holy no matter what's been done to it. I'm going to give it a brand new identity than the one that it maybe had for itself before. I'm going to make it special and set apart. Transform it into something new 
So that it never has to see itself through the lens of guilt and shame, but only sees itself through the lens of my holiness, of my glory, of my love. And I think that's something we ought to take away from this too. I realize as we talk about this issue of sex, this is naturally going to creep into some of our minds. And I think what Paul says here absolutely speaks to that as well. So as we close today, um, I, I want to I pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. Now, communion is, is such an incredible, I think, uh, practice for us to do every single week because it, what it does is it allows us to connect with God and to be drawn back into um, what God has done for us. And that connects to, you know, every sermon. I'm, I'm telling you some way communion connects to it. I'm very conscious to do that, okay? But what what, what, what it is, is it's a reminder of what God has chosen to do with his actual body for us, right? To, to give us life and to give us hope, um, to, to set us free from the types of slaveries that we find ourselves in through the giving up of his body for us. And when we take communion, we're tuning ourselves back to that reality of what God has done for us, even in his, bo- even in his body. His body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And really that, at the end of the day, is our ultimate hope. So as you take communion, reflect on that. Think about what, what it would have been like for someone to willingly give up their body, to allow it to be um, broken and, and the blood to be shed on the cross so that we might find life and flourishing. I want you to kind of think about that as you take communion today and as you reflect on, on whatever the Holy Spirit's leading you into to, to consider as we enter worship. Um, and if you'd like prayer for anything, we will have someone in the back who would be uh, willing to pray for you as well. Let me, uh, let me pray for us to close and then we'll enter into that time. Lord, we thank you that, um, that uh, you, you, you have given us a vision for a way that we can use our bodies that, that is uh, better for us, Lord. Lord, you, you offer us a vision of flourishing and goodness and life and wisdom in everything that you give us. And that, that's true in sex, Lord. Um, uh, but also, Lord, you, you don't just ask us to do that. You do it for us yourself through your son, through um, your body being broken, your blood being shed for us, Lord. You offer us um, your body so that we may be people who are dedicated to you, God. Give us wisdom to know what it looks like to do that in our day-to-day lives and help us to, uh, to do it well, God. Um, we live in a, in a world where it's hard to do that. If we're being honest, it's, it's hard to, to dedicate ourselves to you in that way. But Lord, I pray that you would you'd help us to do it through your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.